Bibles this morning. Luke chapter 2 again, Luke chapter 2. It's our second week. We have one more week in Luke 2, and then we'll, we'll the, the, the nativity story, we'll move on. But I wanted to dig out of it all that we could in this series. Luke chapter 2, if you're there, if you, if you can, go ahead and stand with me to read the Word of God. We're going to read verses 1 down through verse number 11. Luke 2, verses 1 through 11. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Heavenly Father, bless your word this morning. Touch our hearts. Speak to us. We need to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're continuing our look at the birth story of Jesus. Last week we looked at the supposed contradictions in the text. If you missed that, I'll give you a spoiler, there are none. Um, the supposed contradictions aren't contradictions at all. They are backed up by historical record. That reminds us, by the way, that we can trust the Word of God. Don't look to the historical record to give you faith in, in the Bible. If you're a believer, you should trust the Word of God. Right? But the historical record does support what we believe. Um, we're not making it up. It's not fairy tales. These are actual events that happened. This morning, I want to draw your attention to what I call foundational truths that we find in this story. These are truths that are vital to the Christian life, truths that cannot be ignored. These truths can be uncomfortable to liberal Christians. It can be uncomfortable to cults. These truths are the bedrock of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find in these truths the building blocks of our faith. The first truth I want to draw your attention to is in verses 1 through 4. And this will be kind of a little repetitive at this first point. I apologize, but I want to stress an important point. Look at verses 1 through 4. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, out of the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. The first truth I want to call our attention to this morning is the same thing we looked at last week. The birth of Jesus is historical. It's historic. It happened in history. There was a time, there was a place, a city, a night, a day. The sun rose, the sun set. 
It actually happened. Our Bible is not a collection of fairy tales. It's not Mother Goose. These are accounts of true events that happened to real people. I know sometimes we get the idea as we look at the Bible, don't you, that these were like super people, right? Like Superman. Elijah was just Superman. He was just, I could never do what Elijah did. No, he was a man just like we are, James says. A man subject to the same passions we are. Or Paul, right? What a super Christian Paul was. I could never be the Christian Paul was. Paul was this amazing, larger than life. No, he wasn't. He was a man. He got discouraged at times. He got angry at times. He was sad. He was happy. He was weary. He was hungry. He was bored. He was lonely. Uh, When the uh, disciples of Jesus came into that town in the book of Acts, I don't have the text in front of me, but they came in, they began to worship them as gods. Well, they say, we are men of like passions like you are. These are real people that these events take into account. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses to put together his book. Go back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Let's remind ourselves. There were eyewitnesses to Christ. By the way, if you look at the biblical record, today there are over 5,000 ancient manuscripts of the eyewitness accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over 5,000 dating back to within 100 years of his life. Do you know how many eyewitness accounts we have of Julius Caesar dating back within 100 years of his life? We have zero. Zero. 200 years of his life? We have five that were written within 200 years of his life, about about his life. Five. Jesus Christ, the events of his life, are more well attested than Julius Caesar. Why does the world reject Christ and accept Caesar? Because Caesar's not going to judge their sins. That's why. Right? John chapter 3, I preached there yesterday out at the park, I think it was. They don't come to the light lest their deeds should be reproved, exposed. They, 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 they hate the light. They don't come to the light. Nobody hates false truth, right? We've talked about this before. No, nobody hates that. Uh, you go out somewhere uh, to, to the pier or to the park, and you see a, a group of Jehovah's Witnesses with their propaganda, and nobody's yelling at them. No one's cussing at them. No one's angry at them. I, I was out one time. I think my wife was, may have been there too. We were out at Santa Monica Pier and preaching, and there was these Hare Krishnas who were very loud and very obnoxious, and, and nobody was mad at them. Nobody was angry. But we were just reading the Bible. We weren't even preaching. We were just reading the Bible out loud. And people walking by swearing and cussing and flipping us off. Why are they so? Because they love their sin. So when people say, well, the Gospels, that's not really historical. I need something outside the Bible to be historical. No, you don't. It's more historical than the history books we have on Julius Caesar. It can be trusted. And then, of course, when you give them other stuff outside the Bible, what do they do? That was forged. That's not real. That, that's a later forgery. Why, why would they say that? Because they don't want it to be true. Because they hate Christ because they love their sin. 
What we have in the Bible was I witnessed by people who testified to their eyewitness to other people who could have disproven them had they been lying. I mean, if me and Doug go to the park and we come back and Doug says, you're not going to believe we saw at the park today. It was a purple dinosaur. He was eating people. I was an eyewitness. I saw it. I'm there too. I can say he's lying. There was no purple dinosaur. It was green. There's no purple dinosaur. I could disprove his eyewitness account. Right? Now you remove, remove him 100 years later, 200 years later, and he can make it all up. We wouldn't know the difference. What I'm saying is when Luke and these guys, they gave these accounts, there were people alive who also knew Jesus who could stand up and say, no, that didn't happen. That's not true. They put themselves out there because they were eyewitnesses. It was provable history. But see, the liberal Christians, they like to take the Gnostic Gospels. Well, that's stuff we didn't know about Jesus. You know why? Because it was written two to five hundred years after Jesus, and it was all made up. I believe the eyewitness accounts over 300 years removed accounts. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses. He wasn't an eyewitness. But he's a historian who took facts. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 2. Even as they delivered them unto us, talking about the, the facts, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He's talking to Theophilus. And Theophilus wants to know more about Christianity, more about this person, Jesus. And so Luke puts together an orderly account interviews eyewitnesses to confirm what he's putting into his book. And he says, this was given to us by eyewitnesses. Go to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We have more eyewitnesses. Second Peter 1.16. Second Peter 1.16. The Bible says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. This is Peter talking. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We have another witness. First John chapter 1, in verse number 1, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Rather, we've seen, we've heard, we've touched, we know he was real. We know this is real. By the way, John's fighting the Gnostics here. The Gnostics believe that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. He didn't actually have a physical body. He was just a spirit. And John's like, no, no, we, we touched him. He was physical. He had a body. He's a person. Oh, yeah, but they were all, they had every reason to lie. They, they were trying to build a religion and they were trying to, they had every reason not to lie. They all died for what they said. Now listen, there's a lot of people today who will die for false faith. But they didn't create the false faith. They didn't invent it. And these men were tortured and killed. 
for their faith. And by the way, they didn't even leave their own sins out of the books. You would think if Peter's making up a religion, he wouldn't be the guy that he is in the Gospels, right? I mean, a guy that just constantly talks without thinking first. Puts his foot in his mouth all the time. A man of very little faith. I mean, he would have have been like, yeah, I walked on the water, I walked up to Jesus, I gave him a hug, and he held my hand up like a wrestler. I was victorious. No, he sunk. He took his eyes off Christ, and he sank, and like a little baby, he cried out, Lord, save me, Lord, save me. They had every reason not to lie, but to give accurate accounts. And here we have the book of Luke is, historically speaking, a letter to Theophilus who has heard of Jesus and wants to know more. This is a non-Christian receiving this letter who's just investigating the claims about Jesus. And he was so convinced by it, he became a believer later on. But don't just take the Bible's word for it. Secular historians attest to these events as well. We saw that last week for a little bit of it, but there's abundant secular witness to Jesus. In the 12 Caesars, by Gaius and Teutonius Tranquillus, we read, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, that means Christ, he expelled them from the city, speaking of Nero. He expelled the Christians from the city of Rome because they were preaching Christ. Suetonius checked his information against Roman archives to verify his information. What about the birth of Jesus? There is historical witness to the birth of Christ outside the Bible. The Roman historian Macrobius, who wrote about Herod's slaughter of the children, recorded this in his writings. He said, When he heard that among the boys of Syria, under two years old, whom Herod the king of the Jews had ordered to kill, his own son was also killed, and he said, It is better to be Herod's pig than his son. He was speaking of Emperor Augustus. That when Herod ordered the slaughter of the children two years old and younger in Matthew chapter 2, that the emperor of Rome killed his own son under two years old. And the historian said it was better to be his pig than his son. These events actually happened. There are records of it. We saw last week with the, the census and the taxation that they were doing. There are Roman records that tell us that you had to return to your family's city of origin to be counted for the tax. You had to bring your family with you to register them for the tax. We also learn that Serenius was governor of Syria two different times, historically. One time, he ordered the census, which brought Jesus here to be born at the exact time, historically speaking, that the Bible records that he was born. And then 10 years later, he was governor again, and he collected the taxes, and that began the revolt that we see mentioned in Acts chapter number 5, by the Galilean who revolted against the taxation, also written by Luke. Luke's history is spot on. What I want you guys to get is that this actually happened. No pie-in-the-sky fairy tale. The Bible is actually, literally true. The things that it says happened, we have to get a hold of this. Because we serve a supernatural God. If the stories in the Bible bother you, I don't know that you're a Christian. I don't know, because our whole faith is in God became a man, died for our sins, brings us back to spiritual life, and gives us new life. We're born again. Why does Luke include so many secular and historical points in his book? 
The answer is remind us that this actually happened in history. There was a decree from the Roman government for taxing. There was a Caesar named Augustus. A man named Serenius was governor of Syria, not once but twice. Joseph actually left Galilee, and in Galilee there was a city called Nazareth. There was a place called Judea, in which was a city called Bethlehem, which historically was known as the city of David. These are historical and geographical markers that could be very embarrassing if they're making it all up. There's historical facts here for people to go back later and to verify these things actually happened. These are in the story to let us know that this is not made-up fable, but actual historical events with a time and a place. God used ordinary means to get them where they needed to be. It was a decree of a pagan king that brought them to Bethlehem. Think about that. Think about that. How God works in this story. God could have orchestrated, I guess, where Mary lived in Bethlehem and fell in love with Joseph, who lives in Bethlehem, and they're betrothed to be married, and then, and then God does the whole virgin birth thing, and boom, he's born in the, in the city prophesied, right? No. God's going to do, Mary lives over here. I'm going to have her live over here in Nazareth. I'm going to move Joseph over there too. And they're going to meet there. And they're going to be betrothed. And then, i got to get him back to, to Bethlehem. I'm going to use a I'm going to use a pagan governor, and he's going to issue a government order for taxation. And that's going to bring them to the very city prophesied where Christ would be born. Why? To show us that it was all God that did it, first of all. He's in charge of, do you know he's in charge of government rulers? They do his bidding. They can't do anything that God doesn't allow them to do. And God uses secular government to bring about his purposes. Can I give you an example? Alexander the Great. Had Alexander the Great not conquered the known world under the Greek Empire, the gospel never could have spread in the book of Acts like it did. He brought everyone under the Greek language. Just before the birth of Christ, we have Alexander the Great linking up the whole known world that became the Roman Empire into one language. The gospel could spread from country to country to country. God did that. God organized that. God orchestrated that. These are actual historical events that we can point to and say, this actually happened. Too many Christians today, I'm convinced of this, believe the Bible is pretty much just made up stories. Right? Like we talked about before here, heaven. It's not a floating place on a cloud with a fat baby playing a harp. We have this vision of it's just this kind of wavy vision of Jesus rose from the dead in the physical body. He's forever human. He's forever a man. And a physical body needs a physical place to exist. So heaven must be a physical place. That means he's sitting on an actual throne. That's not metaphor. There's a chair he's sitting on right now overseeing the affairs of the universe. It's real. There's a Bethlehem. There's a Judea. There are tombs and records we can find. Caesar Augustus, Herod the Great, all these people, because it's historical. It actually happened. And I think if we get a hold of that as Christians, we can change the world. If Christians actually believe the things they say they believe, it would change the world. 
The problem is we don't. We don't believe it. We don't really believe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, we have a doctrinal statement that says we do, but there's no real practical way we believe that. I mean, yeah, we believe this or that. I know a lot of I, I used to I used to I used to believe that there's no condemnation those who are in Christ Jesus. But I'll tell you what, I lived as though I was trying to earn God's favor by my good works. Theologically, I would say salvation is by grace through faith, but practically, I didn't live that. I didn't really believe that. You understand what you believe impacts your life. If it doesn't, you don't really believe it. I've used the example a lot. When I was preaching in prison, I use this one all the time. Because Bakersfield sat, you know, kind of just south or north of here. I used to tell the men, we're talking about repentance. It's changing your mind. It's to see God for who he is. I said, if I'm driving to Disneyland and I get in the car in Bakersfield and I head north, will I get to Disneyland? No. No. And my wife goes, honey, you're going the wrong way. I can say, oh, yeah, I believe you. But I keep driving. Does she think I believe her? No. Now, if I say, oh, I am? Oh, man, my bad. Get off the freeway, turn around, get back on the other direction. What, what have I done? I've demonstrated that I really believe what she said. I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn around. I went the wrong way yesterday. I had to turn around. She's like, this is the wrong way. Okay, let's turn around. If you really believe that Jesus was a man and God at the same time, that he died on the cross for your sins, for my sins, how do we go on living in those sins for which Christ was punished? The answer is, we don't really believe that he was. We don't believe that he was real. And so we can say, oh, Jesus is coming back again. And everybody says, amen to that. Do we really believe it? Do we live like he's going to? Do we live like the Bible's right, that there is a point a man wants to die, and after this is a judgment? Do we live? Do, we, do you believe that your life is like a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Then why do we live like we have all the time in the world? Like it'll just always be like it is today. No, the day will come when you won't be here. Your seat will be empty. Somebody else will be there. You say, where will I be? In another church? In a graveyard. In a box. Your soul in heaven. Because you'll be gone. I'll be gone. Somebody else will stand here. Just two years ago, somebody else stood here. And he's passed off the scene. And I'm here. And then one day, very soon probably, time goes by fast, I'll be off the scene. And somebody else will be here. In other words, do we live our lives like we really believe that? If we do, then why are we wasting so much time in sin and this world? Why do we waste our lives on things that don't matter? Why is so much of my time taken up in things that a hundred years from now won't matter to me because I'll be in eternity? And my wife and I were having discussions last night. I'm just so sick of my smartphone. I just, I just want to break free from it. It consumes so much of my time. I waste so much time. I'm bored. Pull it out. Let's scroll. 
watching a video on getting off your smartphone last night. The guy said, we've lost the art of being bored. Remember when you were bored before smartphones? You can put that time into prayer or think about the things of God. We don't think deeply about God. There's too much noise now. There's too much going on. I want to break free from that. Social media. I told my wife, I feel like I'm a crack addict. Stuck in this rut that I can't get out of. I don't, I, I don't want to be here, but how do I get out of it? I'm getting desperate to say, I don't want to waste my life. That's right. Man, Benji's five months old. Where did those five months go? It goes by so fast. I can still remember when Sky was two and Dale was three. Now they look nothing like those little kids anymore. Time goes by. Our influence is so little. Our time to serve Christ so short. Do we believe the things that we claim to believe? Then why don't we live that way? Why are we wasting so much time and energy on things that don't satisfy us? When we have the living bread and the water of life, we drink and we eat so little from it, don't we? I mean, we just do our little devotion, mark it off for the day, and spend hours on Facebook. Hours in front of the TV. Hours just wasting our lives. Jesus and the story in the Bible is historical. It actually happened. He actually came. God became a man. He lived in an actual city. Wore actual clothes. Lived in an actual house. Taught on actual hillsides. Died on an actual cross. Actually rose from the dead. Ascended to a real heaven. And he's coming back one day. And we're wasting our... We act as if it's just a fable. A fairy tale. That we come on Sunday and we hear the the fairy tale told again and remind ourselves of the fairy tale and then go out and we live our lives as if none of it actually happened. God, rescue us from this. I'm getting so desperate not to waste my life. I was reading this morning on a news story of an actor who died. I don't know him. 49 years old. I'm 42. How brief it is. He was diagnosed with ALS five years ago. Passed away. Yeah, five years ago. 2019. Man, I could just I could go to the doctor tomorrow. I'm not, I don't have an appointment, but if I went to the doctor tomorrow, he could say, you know what, Rick, you've you got signs of the onset of ALS. You've got two to five years to live. You're going to be completely helpless in about two years. People to feed you, clothe you, take care of you. Man, that's the wrong time to get serious about the things of God. That's, that's the wrong time to say, okay, I'm not going to waste my life anymore. We don't, we don't stop wasting our life when the end is in sight. We have the time right now to say, I'm not going to waste what God has given me. Don't waste your life. These aren't fairy tales. They're true accounts of historical events and Christ is seated in the heavenly places right now. He is in charge of this world right now. He is sovereign and he is coming again and everyone in this room within a hundred years, I promise you, will stand before Christ and give account for their life. Don't waste the time that we have. I didn't intend to go that way with that point, but let's move on. Number two. The first foundational truth is that it's historical. It actually happened. Live that way, church. Amen. Number two, Jesus' birth was prophesied. Yeah. 
Jesus' birth was prophesied. This was not a sudden anomaly dropped into human history. This wasn't a last-minute decision. This wasn't God's backup plan. No. It had been long foretold that Christ was coming. Turn to a few of these passages with me. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. His birth was foretold. By the way, Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ was born. 700 years. Skeptics have always accused Isaiah of being written after Christ. Especially because of Isaiah 53. So descriptive of the death of Christ. They said this must be a later edition. In the 1970s, after they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls were buried 200 years before Christ was born. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls was an Isaiah scroll that contained Isaiah 53, proving it was indeed written before Christ was born. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. His birth was foretold. Go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin birth was foretold. Isaiah seven fourteen. Bible says, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us, by the way. Skeptics will say, oh, that's just a reinvention of old mythology of God's becoming. Listen, there is absolutely no historical record of any God who was incarnated into humanity and took to himself human nature. There are stories of gods mixing with humans. That's not the same thing as what Jesus did here. This was completely unique in history. Let me read you Genesis 3.15. This is the moment of the fall of man. When God confronted Adam and Eve. He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. If I need to remind you a little bit of biology, I, I do teach in school. Women don't have seed. Men have seed. What Jesus is saying is a, a child is coming from the woman without the man. That's the virgin birth that will crush the head of the serpent. Turn to Micah 5. Micah 5 verse 2. The place of his birth was prophesied. The fact that they were in Bethlehem of Judea is no happenstance. The fact that Mary living in Nazareth was betrothed to a man from Bethlehem was no coincidence. Micah 5 2. Bible says, but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Ephrathah is another name for Bethlehem in the land of Judah. The prophecy even specifies which Bethlehem. So in the event there's more than one city of Bethlehem, there's no confusion. This Bethlehem. The prophecy is so specific. If they're trying to make this stuff up, you wouldn't be, so, you'd be like the, like the clowns on TV. Somebody out there is suffering from this, right? They're never specific. They're never specific. 
Somebody out there needs this today. This is for somebody on the west coast of... That's not how the Bible does it. The Bible says, hey, in this town, Bethlehem, wait, let me get more specific. This Bethlehem, he's coming. He'll be born there. And he was. Though he's, his parents weren't living there. Though they weren't from there. He brought them there to fulfill, to show that this prophecy is true and real. The star the wise men followed was prophesied. Go to Numbers 24, 17. Numbers 24, 17. Numbers 24, verse 17. The Bible says here, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. Can I, can I be honest with you? Those wise men? See, how did they know that star meant the Messiah was born? They knew this prophecy. Now, the wise men came from the east. They're probably from the area around Babylon. Who was taken captive to Babylon? Israel. That means going back even to the captivity of Israel. God was working out his plan for the coming of Christ. It was no happenstance that God sent Babylon to punish Israel. He had to get Israel there to teach these men. By the way, it wasn't a coincidence that Daniel got favor with the king. God, who are these wise men? These, these are the astrologers and the soothsayers of Babylon. These are the same ones that Daniel was over when he's promoted over the land. I'm sure Daniel taught these people this prophecy. And they came seeking Christ. Do you see how it's all woven together? The entire Bible is one story. Christ was expected. This wasn't something new coming. For hundreds of years, it was foretold in very specific terms what was happening, what was going to happen. Go to Jeremiah 31, verse 15. The death of the children of the head of Herod is prophesied. In Jeremiah 31, 15, I'll hurry with the rest of it here. I kind of spent a lot of time in point number one. Jeremiah 31, 15. Matthew quotes this when he speaks of his account of the birth. Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted uh, for her children because they were not. This prophecy is taken from Jeremiah 31, which references the return of the exiles from captivity. After the decree of Cyrus the king, the passage records great weeping and great rejoicing over God's people returning to their land. Well, the reason for both weeping and rejoicing is they were rejoicing in the return, but weeping, it was not, it was not full. There was not full freedom. They were still under this foreign nation. They were still being ruled by this foreign nation. What Matthew is saying is that the people of God are still in exile. Herod was an Idumean, which means he was a foreign ruler over the land of Israel. Although the people were still under foreign rule, victory was coming to God's people, and that deliverer, that child, would be born in Bethlehem. His journey to Egypt was prophesied. Go to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. 
Hosea chapter 11. Matthew quotes this as well on the return from the land of Egypt. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. One of the greatest truths of the birth of Christ is that it was predicted in such a way that it couldn't be faked. If Mary were to be betrothed to someone living in Bethlehem, maybe, maybe. But they had no control over Roman edicts that brought them there. They had no control over any of that. This, was, this is the fulfillment of centuries-old prophecy. Very specific prophecy laid out so that there's no way an imposter could conjure up a false fulfillment. In other words, there's no way one person could have faked the circumstances of his birth to fulfill every prophecy. Number three, the birth of Jesus was substantiated. Go back to our text in Luke chapter 2. If the birth of Jesus was made up, it was just a fable, surely some would have disagreed. Some would have risen up and said, this is, you're making this up. Okay. You're, I mean, everyone, I, I think I have the cutest baby in the world. I think that's, I can probably prove that. Okay. But I'm, I'm the baby's parent. Other parents might disagree. They can disagree and be wrong. I don't mind. So I can sit and say, I have the cutest baby in the world. Someone sits and say, no, you don't. My baby's cuter. When someone sits and says, my baby is the Messiah. Couldn't somebody else say, there is no evidence for this at all. There's no proof of that. It would have been one thing if people had to take Mary and Joseph's word for it. But there were others, complete strangers, who substantiated the claim that Jesus was the Son of God. Look at 2, verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This is the first group to confirm the identity of the Savior. That's the angels. The angels are the first witness. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. We'll get back to that part in a minute. The second group are the shepherds. By the way, these shepherds lived in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph did not. They did not know each other. There's no coercion between them. These are perfect strangers who came to testify what the angels had said about Jesus. Verse 15, it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. They didn't know Mary and Joseph, but they believed the angels and they verified it for themselves by going to see Jesus, confirming all that was told to them was true. The next group to substantiate the birth of the divine child was the wise men. I'm short on time. Let's read you the text. Matthew 2.11 says, And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These wise men traveled, and they worshipped this child. They substantiated the claim. They didn't show up and say, This must be the wrong child. This must be the wrong house. I'm sorry. A star, led, a star stopped over the house where they were. 
Mary and Joseph couldn't make that up. They couldn't conjure that up. They recognized who he was. They declared that he was not an ordinary baby. The next birth, or the next substantiation comes right after his birth. In Luke chapter 2, look at verse 25. Luke 2, 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same was a just and devout, and waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when, he, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, after the custom of the law, then took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. He's in the temple. These perfect strangers come to him, are coming into the temple, carrying the child to do for him after the custom of the law. He sees the child, and what does he do? God reveals him through the Holy Spirit. That's him. And he grabs the child, and he blesses him. He substantiates the claim that Mary and Joseph were making about who this child was, and he does it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 36. And there's one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. The point is, this is not a contrived story. We're not just taking Mary and Joseph's word for it. Angels appeared and declared, this is the Savior, Christ the Lord. Shepherds went and said, this is the baby they were talking about. What they're saying is true. The wise men came and worshipped him and said, he truly is God. We're going to worship him. Then they go in the temple with people they never, they weren't from Jerusalem. They were from Nazareth. They walk in the temple and this perfect stranger walks up and says, the Lord, the Holy Spirit has told me, this is him. This is the Redeemer of Israel. Then Anna comes in and she takes him up too and she blesses him and says, this is him. This is the Savior. And what I'm saying is that we're not following cunningly devised fables made up by parents who wanted their kid to be something special. What I'm saying is that what God or what they claimed he was is proven by those who saw the child. We have so many eyewitnesses who testify who Jesus is. It's beyond a doubt. The last one tonight, this morning. I want to talk about, as foundational doctrine, the birth of Jesus and the hypostatic union. This is so important. Hypostatic union sounds like a big theological term, but it's really quite simple. I'm going to read to you from David Mathis on this. This is who I also quoted back during our Wednesday night series on the Trinity. He says, Our English adjective hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis. The word only appears four times in the New Testament. Maybe most memorably in Hebrews 1.3, where Jesus is said to be the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Here, the author of Hebrews uses the word in reference to the oneness of God. Both the Father and the Son are of the same nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. However, in early church discussions, as Greek thinkers tried to find agreeable terms with those who spoke in Latin, the word hypostasis came to denote not the sameness in the Godhead, that's God's one essence, but the distinction, distinct, distinctness, the three persons. So it began to be used to refer to something like the English word person. 
The hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. Jesus has two complete natures, one fully human and one fully divine. What the doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches is that these two natures are united in one person in the God in the God man. Jesus is not two persons, he is one person. The hypostatic union is the joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus. This is foundational. What happened in Bethlehem was the joining of the divine nature and the human nature into one person who is both God and man. Jesus lost nothing when he took to himself humanity. He gained something. He didn't become less God. He didn't become less divine. He's fully God and fully man. That's the only way he could pay for our sins. This joining took place nine months before his birth in the womb, but it was manifested here at this time for all to see. Luke uses the word Lord interchangeably with God. In the first two chapters, the word Lord occurs 27 times, with 25 of them referring to God. Look at Luke 2, verse 9. Luke 2, verse 9. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel of the Lord, that's the angel of God, appeared. What did they say? Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born the Lord. God, as a baby, as a man-child, he was God, fully human, still fully God. We begin our days at birth, don't we? We come into existence in the womb and we begin our days at birth. Before uh, Benjamin was conceived in the womb, he didn't exist. When he was conceived in the womb, he came into existence. A person who did not previously exist began to exist. The day he was born, his days began on earth. Breathing air, seeing, touching, learning, growing. Jesus was not that way. Jesus pre-existed his birth. He pre-existed his conception in the womb. Jesus has always been. Micah 5, 2 said, his goings forth are of old from everlasting. He's always been. He told the Pharisees, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it was... How have you seen Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. Oh, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. He preexisted. He joined himself to a human nature at that point. God became a man. That was necessary for our sins, by the way, church. Only man could pay for sin. Animal sacrifices could never take away sin. You know why? Animals never sinned. They didn't sin. We sinned. We had to be the sacrifice, but no man could be a perfect sacrifice. Even if I die for your sins, I'm really paying for my sins because I'm a sinner. If Tatsuo dies for your sins, he's actually paying for his sins. He can't redeem anybody. We had to have a perfectly righteous person to be that sacrifice. Who's perfectly righteous? God only. We have a problem, though. God can't die. He's eternal. So what God did is he said, I'm going to take to myself a human nature and a human body that can die. And it did upon the cross. Jesus in his human nature died in the place of you and me under the wrath of God. The birth of Christ brought about our salvation that could not have been achieved without the virgin birth, without the hypostatic, without God becoming a man. We could never be redeemed.
The angel of God appeared, the glory of God shone, and the child born was God. He is Lord as a baby. He was Lord in the womb. As he submitted himself to his parents, he was Lord. When he was on trial, he was Lord. On the cross, he was still Lord. This was David's son, and yet greater than David. In fact, in Psalm 1, 10.1, David calls him Lord. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. This baby was Lord. Abraham rejoiced to see his day and saw it and was glad. This baby would grow up and many would witness to the fact that he is Lord. We don't have time to turn, but let's listen to a few of these. Matthew 8, 27. He said unto them, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. There was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. What manner of man indeed. John 6, 68. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Jesus said, Are you going to Everyone turned away from me. Are you guys going to turn away also? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark that down, Christian, John 6, 68 and 69. We need that today. So many are turning from Christ. So many are turning from the faith. Say, Pastor, do you fear backsliding? I really don't. I'm not trying to be prideful. He has the words of eternal life. I am confident that Jesus is the Son of the living God. Where, Where would I go? I've tasted the bread of life. How can I go back to the world? It could never satisfy me. It didn't satisfy me. If you're not going to be moved, Christian, settle it now. You are sure who Jesus Christ is. You're not going back. How can you go back? How can you go back? How can you sit at a banquet and then go back to the dumpster? (laughs) Can't do it. I've drank deeply of the living water. Where would I go? but to Christ alone. John 7, 45, Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. <laughs> this is no ordinary man. This is different. Even in the aftermath of his death, it was testified that he was Lord. Matthew twenty seven fifty four says, Now when the centurion and they that were with him Watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly and saying, truly, this was the Son of God. You guys like that, don't you? Let me give you one more. This one's in Luke 2. If you're still there, look at verse 46 and 47. It says, It came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions, 12 years old. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. You know what that that tells me? You know what they were thinking? Never boy spoke like this boy. He wasn't a preteen prodigy, nor was he a genius. He was Lord. And as he spoke at the age of 12, grown men marveled. What manner of boy is this? Now for the application this morning, and we're done. These are truths that are foundational to the Christian life. Jesus is the God-man. His miraculous birth and his lordship are attested to by witnesses independent of his family. 
who testified that this was no ordinary child. Eyewitnesses are immense to who Jesus is. Those who attested, like Anna, Simeon, the shepherds, the wise men, could never have conspired with two lowly peasants to create a false messiah. The only answer is, he is who he claimed to be. All this was done openly, not hidden in secret. His birth was foretold, and no one man or nor his parents could create a phony messiah that would fit every prophecy. God even moved them away from their hometown and then used the wicked king's edict to bring them back again. The birth of Jesus is historically provable. Our faith is not blind, Christian. It's founded on solid facts of history. We have great reason to believe the things that we believe. We have the solid foundation of God's word and a secular paper trail to follow. This baby that was born, the Savior, Christ the Lord, deserves our love, our devotion, our worship. It's provable, foretold, and well attested that he is Lord. Your responsibility and my responsibility is to surrender our lives to him, to love him and to serve him and to follow him, to turn from our sin, the very sin that he came to do away with and to follow holiness until the day that we stand before him again and spend eternity with him, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the birth of Christ is not just some fancy story we tell once a year at Christmas time. It's foundational to who we are as Christians. Make sure you're loving Christ. Don't waste your life. Give it to Christ. That's a life well spent. Let's pray. Our Father... Thank you for your word this morning and the people's patience with this kind of long message, but thank you for what you've done in this account of Christ's birth. We don't follow cunningly devised fables. We have the facts of history. We have the attesting of perfect strangers who confirm what was said about this child. And in this child, we have God in human flesh bearing our sins, obeying perfectly the law of God, giving to us by faith his righteousness, his obedience, and taking in himself the punishment that's due to us for our sins. Oh, God, we're a thankful people. Help us now to live in light of this truth, not to waste our time, not to waste our lives, but to give it all to you. Bless the offering to come in Jesus' name. Amen.